0: Morning Whitefields, good to be with you as usual. I always look forward to Sunday morning. We are in Genesis chapter 28 this morning, so if you got your Bible, then uh, please do read along with us. If you need a Bible, you can get one on the back table. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray as we get started this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we desire to hear from you, Lord. We desire to learn of you. We desire to get a glimpse of your glory, Lord, get a glimpse of your grace and your love for us. And Lord, we pray that this morning we would truly encounter you, that just as Jacob encountered you, that so would we. Lord, that just as Jacob heard your word to him, your promises to him, your blessings to him, Lord, that we would hear those things as well. And we pray that just as Jacob was changed and transformed by this event in which he encountered God, Lord, let us be changed and transformed this morning as we encounter you in your word by your spirit amongst us in Jesus' name name. Amen. Amen. So we have been studying through the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings. Uh, This morning we are going to be looking at a man named Jacob. Now we've studied a bit about Jacob over the past few weeks, but this week what we see is what is really a major turning point in his life. Uh, We're going to see the day when God reveals himself to Jacob. Jacob has an encounter with the living God And this is going to be a defining moment in his life, right? This is going to be a moment in which his life takes a whole new trajectory, in which his life goes in a whole new direction after this. And maybe some of you can relate to that. Maybe there have been moments in your life which were definitive for you. Uh, They changed the course of your life. I know for me personally, I have had moments like that. They've been defining moments in my life. They've been turning points. They've been experiences which defined the course that my life took Um, you know and of course probably the most defining moment of my life was when as a young person I had an encounter with God I wasn't looking for God but God was pursuing me and, and this encounter I had with God, it changed the course of my life. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for those moments in which God reached out to me. I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my kids, I wouldn't have gone to Hungary, I wouldn't be here. So I look back at those moments and I say, that is the defining moment of my life. It defined the course of my life, it defined who I would become. And this is the kind of moment that we see here in Jacob's life as well. Maybe you have similar stories about times when you've encountered God or or when you came to clearly understand some aspect of the gospel. And it changed who you were. It changed the direction of your life. It defined who you would become. And maybe there's others of you here today and you say, well, you know, that does not sound familiar to me at all. Uh, I've never had one of those defining moments in my life where God spoke to me or revealed himself to me and I was that affected by it. Well, if that's you, then I pray that you would encounter God in such a way. You know, that you would have such a moment, that you would get such a glimpse of how much he loves you, who he is, that you would understand the gospel. And that it would so profoundly affect your life that it changes the whole trajectory of your future. So as we study this story, I want to consider the implications of it because I really believe that God has something to say to every one of us who's here today through this story. So here's how I'd like to break it down. What I'd like you to see in this story is a picture of the grace of God. A picture of the grace of God. Grace is defined as undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor. And there are four aspects of God's grace towards us that we can see in this story. Number one, God pursues us. That's the first thing we see. The next thing we see that's God's grace is that God by his grace transforms us. Next we see that God, it's his grace that he blesses us. And then finally, fourthly, uh, God is patient with us. That's also his grace. So four aspects of God's grace. He pursues, he transforms, he blesses, and he is patient. So let's look at the first of these. Number one, God pursues. Here's what's going on in our story, just to get you up to speed. We've got two brothers, Jacob and Esau. They're twins, but they couldn't be more different. They are like night and day, right? Their father is Isaac, their grandfather is Abraham, Abraham is the man to whom God, you know, gave a promise. He called him to be the father of a new nation, a nation that would be governed by God, a nation that would be ruled by God. In fact, that's what their name means, Israel. It means ruled by God. Through this nation, God is going to make himself known to the world. Through this nation, God is actually going to come to the world. By becoming a man so that he can redeem us from the curse of sin. You see, what we've seen in Genesis so far is this. The fundamental problem with the world we live in is the curse of sin. Right? God created the world, good and perfect. But then what happened, right? Sin entered the world and along with sin came the curse of sin, which is death. And we see that manifested in so many ways. Uh, All of creation has been permeated by this curse. You know, we ourselves, we are born under this curse. It's a reality that we have to deal with, that we have to face every day of our lives. We see and experience the effects of this curse every day. You know, as a result of the curse, what happens? People are alienated from God. We were created to know him and be in relationship with him, but as a result of the curse, we're alienated from him. As a result of the curse, we experience uh, life in a way that was not designed to be lived, right? We experience pain and sickness and death and disorder. and, And there's evil and there's violence. And as human beings, we have this sense that the way that things are, the world that we live in, there's something that's not right about it. This isn't the way that it's supposed to be. We have this sense that something's not right. There's something wrong with the world we live in. In fact, there's even something wrong with us. We have this sense about that. You know, the philosopher Blaise Pascal, he was a Christian, and and he put it this way. I love his quote. He says, there's something nostalgic and reminiscent in us that longs to get back to the place from which we've come. And that is because we came from perfection and we were made for perfection. And that's why we have this sort of lingering memory of it. Therefore, we long to return to that place where everything is as God intended it to be. In Genesis 3, right at the beginning of the Bible, right after we read about how sin entered the world, God comes on the scene and God speaks. And he announces that he has a plan to redeem the world and bring us back to that original intention for creation, to put an end to the curse of sin and death. And he says that the the way he'll do that, there's going to be a man who's going to come. He's going to be like no other man who's ever lived, because this man will be the seed of a woman, but not of a man. And when this man comes, he will crush the head of Satan and put an end to the curse of sin and death. And so from that point on, from Genesis 3, right, the narrative of the Bible is focused on bringing us to this man, taking us to this man, revealing this man, the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Savior. And as we go on through the narrative of the Bible, what happens is that more and more is revealed to us about this man, the one we're expectantly waiting for. And what we come to find out in the course of the narrative is that, in fact, the one that we are expectantly waiting for, right, the one who is the hope of salvation and and redemption for humanity and creation, the one who's going to redeem us from the curse of sin and death, he is none other than God himself. He is God who is going to come in. He's going to come down to us. So Abraham, right, he's called to be the father of a new nation through whom God is going to enter into human history and reveal himself to the world. And so Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac becomes the heir. Abraham passes the torch onto him when Abraham passes away. And then Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Now which of these boys is going to carry on the family line that becomes the great nation that leads to the Messiah? The tradition of that day was that the older would inherit the birthright and and become the head of the family when the father passed away. But God, before these boys were ever born, he spoke and he said, I have sovereignly chosen that Jacob, Although he's the younger son, although it's not the custom of the day, Jacob is going to be the one who will receive the blessing and the birthright, even though he's the younger son. But Isaac, he didn't like that idea, right? Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. He played favorites as a parent. And he was determined that Esau should have this birthright. Despite the fact that Esau is the total godless heathen guy that doesn't care anything about the things of God. Despite the fact that God has already spoken that he's chosen Jacob to be the heir and not Esau. So Isaac and Esau, they, they come up with this plan. Isaac is going to give his blessing to Esau, but he's going to do it in secret. Now, they both know this is wrong. This is not something which was usually done in secret. The fact that they're doing it in secret shows that they know that they're sinning, right? But, be, but before they could go through with their plan, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, you know, she overhears what they're going to do. So she tells Jacob what they're up to. And, and Jacob and Rebecca, they team up and they decide to out-con the guys who are trying to con Jacob. And they steal that blessing, which the other guys are trying to steal from him, right? So Jacob pretends to be Esau and he tricks his blind old dad into giving him the blessing. The blessing was rightfully his, actually, but, but he went about getting it in a deceitful way. He tricked his dad. He straight up lied to him a bunch of times. So when Isaac finds out that he's been beaten at his own game, he got very mad. That's where we picked up the story today. And he decided that he's going to murder his brother. That's his plan. It says that that gave him comfort. He says, yeah, I'm pretty upset about not getting the blessing, but I feel a lot better when I think about murdering my brother. So uh, he, he decided that, hey, if I murder him, that way I can get the birthright because I'll be the only son left. I'll have to get the birthright. So Rebecca finds out about this plan too. She's really good at uh, overhearing conversations apparently, you know. She's got like the cup on the wall and everything, listen to whatever's going on. And she tells Jacob to run for his life. She tells him, go to my relatives in Padan Aram, which is, that's about 550 miles away in Mesopotamia, right? That's their family's, you know, homeland. So what we see in our story today is this. Jacob is running from his problems. Jacob's running from his problems. And at one point, it gets to be nighttime, so Jacob pulls up a rock and goes to sleep. You know, they say that a good conscience is a soft pillow. Well, and I guess this is pretty symbolic as well. Jacob doesn't have a good conscience or a soft pillow. He's sleeping on a rock. And as he's sleeping, God gives him a dream. God speaks to him through this dream. This is a divine revelation, right? And here's what he sees. He sees a ladder set upon the earth with, it, with its top reaching to heaven. And there are angels ascending and descending on it. And the Lord God is standing at the top. Now, what is that? Now, remember, what are we talking about? Four aspects of God's grace towards us in this story. Here's the first one. God pursues. God pursues us. Now think about this. Who is seeking who in this story? Who is pursuing whom in this story? Is Jacob seeking God when God shows up? Or is God seeking out Jacob? Well, obviously God is seeking Jacob. Jacob, God's pursuing Jacob. Jacob's literally running away, right? He is running from his problems. He isn't seeking God, he's sleeping, right? The only way he could possibly be seeking God less is if he was dead, right? He, he's not seeking God, he's not pursuing God. But but the grace of God is this that God is seeking him. God is pursuing him, even though he's not seeking God. And really, this is a pattern that we see throughout the whole Bible. That this is what God does. This is who he is. Think about this. Adam sins. Adam hides from God. God seeks him out. Where are you, Adam? Adam's hiding, but God's pursuing him. Abraham, he's this pagan idol worshiper. The last thought on his mind is walking with God. But God comes to him. God speaks to him and comes into his life, breaks into his life, and enters into a covenant with him. Then we've got Jacob. He's not seeking God. He's running away from his problems, but God shows up because God's pursuing Jacob. Later on in the Bible, right? Samuel, he's a little boy. He's living in the temple, and God calls him by name. Samuel wasn't looking for God. God was looking for Samuel. The city of Nineveh, they, they weren't seeking God, but God was seeking them, so he sent him a missionary. He sent him Jonah with a message of repentance and restoration and forgiveness, And we got Jesus, right? He goes out and he finds some fishermen mending their nets and he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. These guys weren't looking for Jesus, but Jesus was looking for them. Saul of Tarsus, he's on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. He's not looking for Jesus, but Jesus shows up and knocks him down. And in each of these cases, when God shows up unexpectedly in these people's lives, as they responded to God's grace... It changed their life completely. It changed the course of their life. It changed the trajectory of their life completely. I can testify in my own life. Seriously, I was not looking for God. When, I, when God came pursuing me, that I, my goal in life was to break as many of the Ten Commandments as fast as I could and as often as I could. That was my goal. But God came and sought me, and by his grace, uh, he pursued me. I had to respond to that grace, but it was he who pursued me first. In John chapter 4, Jesus tells the woman at the well, what does he say? God is seeking worshipers. You know, that is grace. That's unmerited, undeserved favor. God's word tells us that we love because he first loved us. That's God's grace, that he pursues even when we're not pursuing him. Even if we're hiding from him, even if we're running from him, even if we're going in a completely different direction. He's the good shepherd, and this is what he says. He says, I will leave the 99 to go after, to pursue, to seek out the one sheep who's gone astray. You know, as a dad, when my kids wander off, I go after them. I don't just say, well, if they come back, then whatever, you know? I go after them. And that's the pattern of faith. That God's children have wandered away. They've sinned. They've run away from dad. They're lost. And so dad is going after them. He's pursuing them. That's what Jesus said. He said, the son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of grace. It's not about what you've done for God, but what God has done for you because of his incredible love for you. You know, this image of the ladder that spans the gap between God and man, between heaven and earth, this is really the essence of the Christian gospel. This is what Jacob is getting an insight of here. You know, um, Jacob's kind of a big deal because Led Zeppelin wrote a song about him. U2 wrote a song about him. Huey Lewis in the news also wrote a song about him, but that's not such a big deal, actually. So... Some of your translations, they, they translate this as a stairway to heaven rather than a ladder. And that's where we get the Led Zeppelin song from. But Led Zeppelin, right, if you listen to that song, they totally miss the point, right? They totally miss the point of this stairway to heaven. Because here, here's the point of the stairway or the ladder in this story. That it's not the stairway by which we ascend to heaven, by which we climb our way up to God. But this is the stairway or the ladder by which God comes down to us. I want you to see that. This is the the means by which God comes down to earth. What we see is that Jacob actually got that. He understood that. That's why he says this place is the house of God. That's why he names this place Bethel. That's what that means, house of God. Formerly, it, it was called Luz. You know what Luz means? It means separation. Before he was separated. How symbolic is that? But now it's the house of God. Why? Because God has come down to be with him. God has made his dwelling with man. That's what it's talking about. And really this, this is the doctrine of the grace of God who pursues us. He comes down to us. That is what separates biblical Christianity from every other religion and belief system in the world. Did you know that? That this doctrine of grace, this doctrine of a God who pursues us, who comes down to us, that is what separates Christianity, biblical Christianity, from every other religion and belief system in the world. You know, one of my favorite quotes that I've run across lately that I've just been pondering a lot is, uh, is this one. It says, Christianity is neither religion nor irreligion, but it's something else entirely. It is a third way of relating to God through grace. Because the essence of every other religion is this. God is up here. You are down here. And if you want to ascend to God, well, then you've got to put in some major work, dude. You've got to work hard. So follow these rules. Be good. Be moral. Make a pilgrimage. Be reincarnated. Go to purgatory. Do penance. And if you do all these things perfectly, then maybe, maybe you can earn his favor then maybe you can work your way up to God. Then maybe you can take hold of those blessings. If you climb that ladder, if you climb that stairway to heaven, then you can earn his blessings in your life. If you do it, then you can earn it. Now that's the opposite of the gospel. Right? The gospel says that you could never earn God's favor. Never. You could never earn God's blessing. You could never earn eternal life. But if you will accept them then god will give you all these things in christ freely you know some christians they 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 practice a form of christianity which denies the gospel in a sense it denies grace they think that christianity is like any other religion out there that's based on working your way up to God and earning things from God. As if God is in heaven, as if he's saying this, hey, here's a ladder, now go on, climb like crazy, see if you can make it up to me. Hell's hot, so don't mess it up and don't slip. Oh, and by the way, the ladder's covered in grease, so good luck. Now, that's not the gospel, right? Listen to what Paul the Apostle says in Romans 10. He says this, the righteousness based on, based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss? But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul is making the same point. You don't work your way To God in order to receive his grace because God has come to you. You don't have to work to earn the grace of God to merit it. You just respond to it. You know, this ladder is not the ladder by which we ascend to God. This is the ladder by which God comes down to us. This is the reverse of Babylonian religion, right? Maybe you remember back to Genesis chapter 11. The Babylonians believed that they could ascend to God by building a tower that would reach to the heavens, But the gospel is this, that we find throughout the Bible that God comes down to us. And that's grace, that God pursues us, that God has come down to be with us. This is the message of the Messiah, essentially, right? That God will become a man, that God will come down to us, to save us, to redeem us. And that's why it's interesting that there's this pattern throughout the Bible of God coming down. And it it runs throughout the Bible. Think about this, when they build the temple, when they build the tabernacle and then later the temple, the Shekinah glory, the the tangible presence of God comes down and dwells amongst men in the tabernacle. So many Psalms say, the Lord has made his dwelling in Zion. When Jesus comes, what do we read about him? John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And then it says this, and the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God has come to us. And if that wasn't enough, I love this. Check this out. What we read at the end of the Bible, at the book of Revelation, is that when it's all said and done, at the end of all things, what's going to happen? We read this. And he, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more; neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So again, at the end of all things, the picture we get of heaven is that of heaven coming down to us. God coming down to us, descending to us, and making his dwelling with us. So what is this ladder here? What does this symbolize? This ladder spans the gap between heaven and earth, between God and man, and the ladder speaks of God coming down to us, of God pursuing us and seeking us out, saving us and redeeming us. And and finally, I want you to check this out. Notice what Jesus says when he comes on the scene in John chapter 1. He says this. He says, "Jesus said to Nathaniel, "Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man." Does that sound familiar? Jesus is saying, "Hey, you remember Jacob's ladder?" You weren't sure what that was all about, right? I am Jacob's ladder. I am the bridge that spans the gap between heaven and earth. I am the bridge that spans the gap between God and man. I am God come down to earth to seek and to save that which was lost. Isn't that incredible? I love that. Isn't it amazing that God pursues us? That we don't have to ascend to him Because we'd never be able to, right? But by his grace, he pursues us. And that is the essence of the gospel. That is good news. Secondly, we see the grace of God. Another aspect, God transforms. God transforms us. The second aspect of God's grace we see in the story, he transforms us. God speaks to Jacob in this dream and he says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And then if you notice at the end of the chapter what happens, Isaac says, The Lord shall be my God. God, by his grace, he transforms Jacob. He makes him into the person he wants him to be. See, God chose Jacob to be the next patriarch. We see see God's wisdom in that, right? Because Esau, really, he's this total heathen, godless meathead, right? But nonetheless... God gets Jacob, which isn't that great. It's like, well, you can have this guy who hates God, and he's a meathead, or, or you can have Jacob. Well, Jacob's really the only choice. God already chose him, so he's kind of locked in. He's stuck with him. Jacob's not much of a catch. He's not really a shining star. He's not like the guy that anybody aspires to be like, right? Think about Jacob's resume. Think about Jacob goes in for—he he writes his resume. What's it going to say? Oh, well, I'm over 50. I live at home uh, with mom and dad. I've never been married. My best friend is my mom. My skills are uh, baking and lying and stealing and tricking people. Oh, and by the way, I'm really good at tricking old people who are blind. That's my specialty. I have experience in that field. This is the resume of the guy that God has chosen to be the next patriarch. Good luck, man. He's locked in. He can't interview any more candidates. It doesn't work that way. This is it. This is what you got to work with. So what's God going to do? Well, here's what God's going to do. He's going to transform Jacob from being Jacob into being Israel, right? From being a, a wussy, trickster, deceitful type of guy to being a godly patriarch. Now that's grace. The next few chapters of Genesis are all about how God intervenes in Jacob's life. God comes into his life and transforms him from being a crooked guy into being a godly man. God works in his life and takes him from being Jacob, which means deceiver, and changes him into such a different person that he needs a new name. His new name is Israel, ruled by God. And the transformation from Jacob to Israel, from a cowardly con man to a godly patriarch, it begins here, where God takes a hold of Jacob's heart. See, at this point in his life, Jacob is still borrowing the faith of his parents. But he doesn't have his own relationship with God. And that's what changes in this chapter. In this chapter, God goes from being the God of Abraham and Isaac, Jacob's fathers, to being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, for young people who grow up in in believing families, uh, what, what can often happen is that they find themselves in the same position that Jacob's in right now. And uh, at at some point they realize they can't continue to borrow the faith of their parents. They have to make this transition from borrowing the faith of their parents to having their own faith, their own relationship with God. You know, statistics show that the age group which is most absent from churches is ages 18 through 35. Because what will often happen is that mom and dad are believers, and, uh, you know, they make junior and— Juniorette or whatever you call the girl. I don't know read the Bible and to pray and go to church And then they graduate from youth group and they leave home for the first time And and what happens they they find themselves in a crisis of faith where they they start to think well Now no one's making me go to church anymore So I need to think through what do I actually believe I'm not sure what I actually believe. I know what my mom and dad believed, but I'm not sure that that's what I believe. You know, statistically, this is the big gap that's absent from churches. Young people who are out of the house for the first time and haven't figured out their own faith yet. That's where Jacob's at at this point. He, he's out of the house for the first time. He's kind of late in the game, you know, he's in his 50s, but, but he's on his own now and he's having to become his own man. He's having to grow up and, and he's having to get his own faith. He's got to have his own relationship with God based on his own encounter with God. You know, God can, cannot only remain the God of his fathers. God can't just remain the God of Abraham and Isaac. He has to also become the God of Jacob. In the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy essentially right, is a long speech that Moses gave to the children of Israel at the end of their time of wandering in the wilderness, when that new generation was, was ready to move into the promised land and take hold of what God had promised them. And one of the most interesting things as you read through Deuteronomy is this phrase that's repeated over and over, the Lord your God, the Lord your God. Right? That's a second person, single, possessive, right? It's not all y'all's God, but it's your God, you personally. Right? It's repeated over and over. The Lord your God. And and that's different than a lot of other places in the the Torah where God is referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the God of your fathers. And the reason is that Moses is emphasizing to this new generation that's going to enter the promised land. He's telling them, it isn't enough that God be the God of your ancestors. It's not enough that he was the God of your ancestors, that he brought them out of Egypt. Now he has to be your God, personally. And as parents, you know, we, we will do well to encourage our kids to, to work through those things before they get out of the house, you know. Uh, having a teenager myself, you know, this is something I want to be sure of, that I don't just baptize them when they make a confession of faith as a youth and then just assume that they're all set and ready to go and we don't have anything to worry about. You know, I want to do everything I can to make sure that my kids learn to own their own faith, to have their own relationship with God, to have their own experiences with God and not just borrow uh, mine or yours. So notice this before we move on. One last thing. God doesn't pursue Jacob because Jacob is desirable. That's not why God pursues him. But God, rather, God pursues Jacob in order to make him desirable. He doesn't pursue him because he is desirable. He pursues him to, in order to make him someone who's desirable. You know, this week I was reading Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. That's the section which talks about how marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And, uh, and I realized something in the text that I had never uh, noticed before. So here's the text. It's Ephesians five twenty five through 27. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now here's the thing that I realized that I had never actually thought through before, is this. Christ does not love his bride because she is lovely. Christ loves his bride in order to make her lovely. Now, isn't that incredible? It kind of blew my mind. So the interesting thing is that this is the model which is given to us as as Christians and as men, as husbands, to follow. We don't love our wife if she is lovely, but rather we love her in such a way that it causes her to become lovely, become more lovely. And, And that's how God relates to us in regard to his grace. That is his grace that he transforms us. That he doesn't pursue us because we are lovely. He pursues us in order to make us lovely. God's grace, it's that he accepts us as we are. And it's his grace that he works in our lives so that we don't remain as we are. So that he can make us into people who are the people he desires us to be. Removing those things from our lives which don't have any place there. And giving us things that belong there. Thirdly, God's grace is that he blesses. Notice, God blesses Jacob. He promises to give him the land of Canaan to his descendants. He blesses Jacob by giving him personal promises as well. First, he says, he will be with him. Now, that's pretty good if you're Jacob, because right now, Jacob is all alone. But God says, Jacob, I know nobody likes you. I know you don't have any friends, but I like you, Jacob, and I'll be with you. Then he says, Jacob, I will protect you. That's also nice because Jacob is running for his life right now. So that's a big promise right now, right? I will protect you. And finally, God says he will not forsake him. Jacob was not a very loyal person. We see that he deceived his own family. But God promises to be loyal to him. Grace, unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. And what that means is that not only can we not earn our salvation, but we cannot merit the blessings of God. And fourthly, this is the last point, the grace of God that we see, the last aspect is this. God is patient. Notice this. Jacob responds to the grace of God. That's good. We need to be people who respond to the grace of God. And, you know, I believe that if we truly get a glimpse of God's love for us, God's grace towards us, then we will not be able to restrain ourselves from holding back. That's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says the love of Christ constrains us. He says there's nothing that we can do to stop ourselves from responding when we really get a glimpse of his love and grace. But, but here's the thing. Um, check out Jacob's response. He says, Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and, and will, give me, will keep me in this way that I go and give me bread and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my Father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. All of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now we are seeing some major spiritual progress here, aren't we? Right? I mean, he has truly been converted. When someone's truly been converted, you see it in their worship and in their works, in their actions, Right? He doesn't just worship God in words, but he worships him in his actions. He builds a memorial. He pays the tithe of all that he gets. These are good things. We see major progress here. But there are two things in this prayer that could be a bit troubling. Now, the first is this, that there's this idea of this rock being the house of God. Now, that just seems a bit incongruent with what the Bible says about God. And the second is this word, if, at the beginning of his prayer. He says, if God will do all these things for me, then I will make the Lord my God. Now, now, there are two ways of looking at this. Some Bible scholars, they're really torn on this because some have said that the word if could be understood in the sense of because God has done all these things, because God is going to do these things for me, this is my response to his grace. The other uh, option here is that it could mean that Jacob is trying to barter with God in prayer you know Uh, he certainly wouldn't be the first person or he certainly wouldn't be the last person to do it you know you always hear people God if you let me pass my test then I'll move to Calcutta and feed the poor forever you know what I mean I'll I'll give a million dollars over the next five years or something like that you know what I mean um now, scholars say that the text could be read either way, so we don't really know for sure which one is it. Is he making a deal with God, or is he saying, God, because you've been so good to me, this is what I, how I will respond. I, I would lean this way. Just knowing Jacob, knowing where he's come from, I would tend to think that knowing human nature as well, I would tend to think that probably he's saying this in the sense of, if you do this for me, then I will do that for you, making a deal with God. And, and here's what I take away from this. One aspect of the grace of God is that he's incredibly patient with us. Like Jacob, most of us when we get saved, we don't have perfect theology right away. We don't understand that this rock can't be the house of God. We don't understand that it doesn't work by us bartering and making deals with God. That's not how grace works. You know, if it is true that, that Jacob is trying to cut a deal with God in his prayer here, you know, if he's saying, God, if you do all these things for me, then I'll give you me. Congratulations, you know. You get me. And I'll give you 50 bucks, you know. He, he, he certainly wouldn't be the first person in history to do that. To try to barter with God in prayer. To try to make a deal with God. By promising to give God something that, um, you know, if, if God would do something for them. So, remember, this is Jacob's first day of walking with God. He's still got a thing or two to learn. It's going to take a couple chapters until he gets changed to Israel. But this is God's grace. He's incredibly patient with us. Sanctification isn't a one-day process. And, And by God's grace, he's patient with us and he faithfully grows us in our faith. So just wrap it up. In this chapter, we have an incredible picture of God's grace. God's undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor, and the four aspects of God's grace that we see in this story are these. God pursues us. God transforms us. God blesses us, and God is patient with us. So let us, therefore, be people who respond to the grace of God like Jacob did in worship, in our actions, in lives that take a whole new course because we've encountered the grace of God. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you that you don't say, hey, here's a ladder, climb your way up to me. But Lord, you say, here's a ladder and I am coming down to you. Lord, thank you that you have come to us. Lord, thank you that you have indwelt us even. Lord, we thank you for the incarnation, Lord, that you became a man you dwelt among us, that you could save us from our sins, that you could redeem us, that you could give us future and a hope in you that is glorious. So Jesus, we commit ourselves to you. Help us to be people who respond to your grace, even today and in our lives to come. Lord, let your grace set a new trajectory in our lives. Give us a new course to walk because we've seen your grace. We've had a glimpse of your glory and your love. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.